Okay, I should say let us start because tonight we're going to have two parts to this presentation. First of all, namaste and good evening to all of you. And um, I'm supposed in the first part to give a short presentation for those who still have not decided if they are interested to join or not into our coming retreat, which was called Agama Retreat, the Agama Retreat. And it has the subtitle, or it's also called, known as the Awakening of the Spirit. Um, this is a retreat which by tradition, it has become a small tradition in the school now, exactly as we have the Christmas and New Year retreat, which is our oldest running retreat in the school. This one, the Awakening of the Spirit, it started a few years ago because people were going to retreats which were of a Buddhist nature or people were going to retreats belonging to other schools and they felt that each one of those retreats was tracing a path, was showing the spirit of a certain lineage was giving an example, and actually people were then saying, you know, it's like, let's make a retreat which illustrates the spirit of Agama. Let's uh, show what Agama is made of. And thus, we decided to do the Agama retreat, an Agama retreat, which is inspired or which is uh, dwelling in many, many of the techniques of Agama, of course, we still, uh, Agama, as you know, is a very esoteric style of yoga, and it is based on the step-by-step -step development of the human being. And uh, although we may very much want to show some things from the Kundalini Yoga practices or others, we actually cannot because those techniques do not address to beginners, to newcomers. They require uh, preparation. And because of that, of course, Agama is much more complex than what we can show in a retreat for the simple reason that some of the techniques of Agama are very powerful, demanding. They require training, preparation to get there. But still, we did put together this retreat. And uh, by tradition, this retreat um, came in the time of the year where I'm celebrating my birthday together with uh, one of the very, very advanced teachers of the school, Muktananda. Uh, and because of this, um, the tradition made so that this became a free of charge retreat. It's like a gift for everybody that people can attend this retreat for free. It doesn't mean that we want people to get sloppy about it or negligent or uh, to neglect the elements of discipline because otherwise the retreat is not serving its purpose. A retreat is serving its purpose when people immerse themselves into it, make an effort to stay there every day to do the practices, to see what results arise. But as I said, as re this retreat became um, an established thing in Agama in the end of August, and uh, it is a retreat which is done in such a way that it starts from the beginning of the week and ends on uh, 
that particular date of August 28, and therefore it varies from cycle to cycle. This uh, year, this retreat is of five days, and if I remember correctly, next year it will be of seven days, so its length is variable. And uh, the, one of the first things when I was asked if I want to show to people, to make people taste in four days, five days, seven days, whatever it takes, to taste a little bit of the spirit of Agama. I said yes uh, with joy, that's a great opportunity. And um, one of the first things which came to mind is uh, to bring people to an enthusiastic practice. It's something which many of you, especially I see many new faces here, um, you might not know, but it's one of the problems of every spiritual path, that always when you get on a spiritual path, in the beginning people have an epiphany, people have a revelation. They didn't know anything about spiritual paths, and then if the spiritual path is well articulated, then people discover a lot of things. Especially the path of yoga is amazing because it gives so many practical things. Like it's not only a spiritual path, it's a spiritual path with so many collateral benefits that you can heal your stomach diseases or you can improve your daily life or you can learn to see auras or a hundred things are there and uh, those are collaterals to the spiritual path. They are enhancing the spiritual path and then many people when they discover a spiritual path, especially a spiritual path as rich as yoga, and especially a spiritual path as rich as the tantric forms of yoga, which work with energies, with chakras, with resonance, with the five bodies, and with all the things which pertain to this wonderful tantric environment, then it's not difficult for people to get enthusiastic. Many people were witnessing this, that many people who do the first level of yoga, um, second, third, and so on, they are their soul goes on fire completely. There is a lot, they realize that they discovered something which they haven't learned about in school and about which the world at large does not really know and which is not really advertised properly. And therefore, people uh, become full of commitment and full of this devotion and enthusiasm and energy. But then there comes the, a stage which can happen after six months of practice or after six years of practice, that although the results are there and people are coming from one season to the next because they can see improvement and they see I'm doing this much, I'm getting this much, like the system works, nevertheless, there appears a simply human factor, which is simply the fact that the human mind gets bored by repetitive action. Either you pray to Jesus Christ or you are dancing the dervish spinning dance or you are doing Taoist breathing exercises or you are training in Aikido five hours per day or whatever you do, including yoga. At some point, a certain childish part, which is always very enthusiastic about new toys, about novelty, that part gets inevitably bored because inevitably you are doing 10 years the same thing and then you 
start not having that part. Some people can function without that part. I've known school teachers, every four years they will take a first grade class and they will teach again kids how to make sticks and curls and hooks and A and B and C and they've done that for a lifetime. Since they were 25 until they were 65, they taught kids how to read and write and make addition and subtraction and multiplication and all that. And uh, they didn't get bored. They had a vocation. It was lovely for them to take small kids and turn them into human beings, to educate them, to give them the basic skills for life. Other people would say, I enjoyed being a school teacher for eight years. After eight years, I started feeling I'm doing the same thing again and again. Of course you do the same thing. Every generation of children requires that the teacher does exactly the same thing. If you are relying on this novelty animal in your head, then of course you get bored. If there is something deeper in you, like a vocation, like the call, like the pleasure to see that people develop, grow, get something out of it, you don't get bored. Many people ask me, Swami, didn't you get bored to teach the same lectures and the same workshops? No, I never get bored because I'm not teaching it for the thrill which it causes to me to do something new. I'm teaching it because I'm looking at the effects which it has on you. And when I see how you blossom, that's, there's no reward greater than that. So repetitive work can be done with pleasure once you are in a certain frame of mind. That's the, one of the problems which all pupils in yoga encounter. People are getting bored even by a new sexual partner. You get a new sexual partner, in the beginning it's all bells and whistles, and then three years later you don't even sleep with your sexual partner, and you are thinking about others. Why? Because the oxytocin in your brain or whatever wears out, and you experience an inevitable, some people feel very ashamed and embarrassed by it, but you experience an inevitable actual phenomenon of boredom. If you eat potato soup every day, after three years you say, fuck the potato soup, you know, give me, give me something much less tasty, but at least it shouldn't be potato soup. So in this way, uh, what I'm saying, the same problem is experienced in yoga. When you think about people who lived their life in a monastery for a lifetime, or people who have been in an ashram, or people who have been in a lineage and they just did the same thing day in and day out, you discover that those people had a certain amount of heroism. They must have had an incredible level of self-discipline and willpower. And at the same time you realize, it's not possible that somebody prayed to Jesus for 60 years, or did dervish dancing for 60 years, or did Buddhist vipassana for 60 years, and at the same time they did it just out of self-discipline, like there must have been something in it for them. They must have got something out of it. 
Because otherwise, you know, I'm just going to say, no, no, I'm going to be self-disciplined and do it. Even if I feel bored, even if I feel sad, even if I feel nothing, I'm just going to do it because I took that vow and I'm doing my self-discipline. That's why uh, a problem which appears in yoga is that in the beginning, it's very easy for me and for the teachers of Agama and any other good spiritual teacher to wake up your enthusiasm. And you discover something new, and then you say, wow. Then three years later, some people collapse. And they kind of like, okay, I've heard it. Uh, yeah, now I have to do the Anabanda again. And uh, now I have to do whatever, to stand on my head again. Therefore, uh, this is exactly one of the things which I'm addressing in this Agama Retreat. I'm talking about making a retreat of enthusiastic practice. There are people who lose the beginning enthusiasm, but they do not find the spirit of the true spiritual practitioners, which is also giving you something, and it's another kind of enthusiasm, but not based on that superficial thrill. It's based on something much deeper. It's a satisfaction of the heart, of the soul, of the spirit. And these people are, as Sri Aurobindo had put it, a great yogi of the 20th century, he said, people who don't manage to cross from one to the other, they fall between two chairs. He said, it's exactly like you lift your bottom from one chair and want to place it on another chair. But in the middle you lose it and you fall between the two chairs. Then you are neither on the first chair, no more, and you haven't reached to the next chair, and you just fall in between them, which is not good. That is one thing which I am addressing, which is in the, in, in the books there, because I would like that people, after they go after their first enthusiasm, the first infatuation with yoga, when the bells and whistles are going, that people still can preserve the enthusiasm, like not to do the yoga practice like a chore, not to do the yoga practice like a bull carrying a heavy yoke on the neck and it's like, oh, it's nine o'clock. I have to do my Udhyana Bandhas, you know. There, where is, how, what effect will you have if you do yoga in this way for the next 10 years, for the next 20 years? You are just doing it like, uh, uh, uh. Obviously, the resonance of your mind the mood, the emotion, what you create through the concentration of your mind is not very constructive. Then we see people who for two, three years manage to summon some willpower. Modern times become really bad because people have a very short attention span and they don't have self-discipline and willpower. Many, many people don't compared to a hundred years ago or more when people were a bit more stubborn on these things. Everybody was an, wants a nice and easy life, full of fun and superficial joys. And then, uh, then the spiritual path becomes a chore. And then you do it three years out of sheer willpower. And then in the end you don't do it anymore. You are just collapsing out of it. And you are... I've seen people who psychologically, if you diagnose them psychologically they started manifesting rejection to the spiritual path. Like they would do anything 
but not samudhyana bandhas or headstand or warming exercises or meditation. It's like they hated them. That was a matter of the wrong input. It was a method of the wrong feedback. Like all the time feeding your brain and your being with the wrong feedback that yoga is an effort, that the spiritual practice is a chore, that you have to work hard and all that. Then in the end, of course, when you accumulate a critical mass, you would do anything. You would just sit on, stay on Facebook for hours in a row instead of stopping for 30 minutes and doing a bit of laya yoga or something. And this is the problem. It's a problem which is appearing on any spiritual path, not only in yoga. And that's why um, this retreat is a retreat of practicing with spirit. Like instead of practicing mechanically, like, okay, I have to do this. So I'm doing some Udhyana Bandhas or whatever. I rather stop and recall all my aspiration and all my high spiritual values, and I'm saying, wait a second, why am I doing this? Why am I into this? Like, if this is not to my own benefit, if this is not to my own development, if this is not something which I'm singing in my heart to do, then why do I do it? You know, like, then honestly, why don't I go watch a movie or something? Like, why don't I do something which is thrilling me? Because when people usually start going to yoga, and we see it with the beginners and with some practitioners, they sit, they do hours of practice. They are enthusiastic. Their heart is singing. And if you ask them, are you getting results? They're going to say, yes, I'm getting amazing results. It's better than I expected. And in spite of all these things, Still people build a line of neg negative feedbacks. They don't give themselves the positive feedbacks. And because of this psychologically, they start choking. They start accumulating too much of this psychology of hard work. And eventually their own spirituality is not a joy. It's not natural. It just becomes something difficult. And that's why this... Um, Retreat is based on enthusiasm. I'm going to share with you things which made me and which make me enthusiastic, things which can make you enthusiastic, and anything which works, we can use it. No, just to give an example, at some point I noticed that many, many people react very, very beautifully after they watch certain well-chosen spiritual movies or documentaries. It's a habit which we have in the New Year, in the Christmas and New Year retreat, that we play constantly, every year we play the probably the best made Jesus movie in the history of Jesus movies, which is made by Franco Zeffirelli, an Italian filmmaker, some 40 years ago. And that movie has changed many, 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 many lives radically. And we play it. And every year I get that, that people come and say it was incredible doing the Christmas and New Year retreat and watching that movie. It blew my lid off. It blew my mind off completely. It just moved my heart and my soul 
in a way in which I never saw it coming. I never thought that was possible. Ultimately, you can say, it's just a movie. So maybe it's not made by Hollywood, but it is like a Hollywood movie. No, and just a movie, what has that got to do with spirituality? Movies are just dreams and illusions, and with, but human beings guide themselves by dreams and illusions. Either those dreams and illusions are given by Krishna or by Buddha or by Jesus or by Rumi, still there are images of the divinity, there are images of evolution, there are images of the perspectives of the soul, which are extremely mobilizing, extremely energizing for the human soul. That's why I sometimes even express the thing that if I would have the time to revolutionize this, I would even create a video retreat in which you watch one, two hours of moving video, and then you stop, take a little bit of extra technical teaching to make it clear what you have to do for that, and then you do a meditation. And the meditation done in that state of enthusiasm and in that state of looking forward so much to it produces miracles. It mobilizes, it moves the energy of the human being so much more. So this is sharing with uh, you, with the school, sharing a little bit about this enthusiastic practice. So I consider it a sort of a five-day satsang with, uh, for people to reach new levels of practice. And of course, we will start with... Uh, so, as I said, this uh, awakening of the spirit, this Agama retreat... We'll start with relatively simple things. It's not the purpose to present a lot of things. The path of Agama literally contains hundreds of yoga techniques. Asanas, pranayamas, mudras, bandhas, kundalini, meditations, visualizations, concentrations. So, of course, in a five-day retreat, we do not intend to actually replace the yoga course, but rather to present the spirit of Agama. The path of Agama, ultimately, because every teacher can present only what they have done. Yeah? It's like I did practice longer retreats of meditation, but I have not been for 12 years in a dark room like some Tibetan lamas used to do. There are other things which I have not done because they are not part of my path. And therefore, the path of Agama, which people learn in this school, either they stay because it fits with them, or they just visit Agama to get something from it. It's my own path. I cannot teach you the path of my friend Sahajananda, or the path of Ramakrishna. Because I am not either of them, I'm myself. That's why, always uh, in spirituality, Pupils find the teachers that fit with their temperament and with whom they fit with their method. And thus, my path, for example, 
if I look comparatively to what I've read and seen in the world of spirituality, and I've been around quite a while, um, it's a path of, I rather prefer to do spirituality as a path of frantic enthusiasm. I do not prefer to practice spirituality like a chore or like a self-discipline. Not because I don't know what it is, but simply because that's not what motivates me. I'm very appreciative that Milarepa says that when he received a certain initiation, he spent 16 days non-stop in meditation. Well, that's good for him. He has the willpower to sit on his ass for 15 days without moving. Good, I've never stayed 15 days without moving. And the point is that it's not an absolute necessity because there are many, many other spiritualists in this world who reached success and who did not sit for 16 days without moving in a meditation. So what Milarepa reports is outstanding And if any one of you is the kind of person who would sit 16 days without moving an inch in meditation, good for you. Then join Milarepa's lineage. You still can find Tibetan lamas who teach Milarepa's style. You are not going to find that style in Agama. Because I haven't done what Milarepa did. I have done what I did. And thus, uh, as I said, in Agama, the style of our practice is more a style based on enthusiasm, frantic, I would say, enthusiasm, like if you get devotion, if you get love for God, if you get this and that, like really go for it, half an hour of that is much better than six hours of boring yoga practice. Like do it half an hour with all your heart and you are going to break through more than doing it boringly like a chore in a way. It's not valid about all the yoga techniques. Now I'm speaking about the spirit of the practice. So I am always in favor of a spiritual practice which is born out of great aspiration, which is born out of enthusiasm. Never forget that the Greek word enthusiasm, the word enthusiasm comes from the Greek entheos, which means in God. The person that is enthusiastic is in God. Because enthusiasm is a movement of the jivatman, is a movement of the soul. And that's why um, I always encourage this enthusiasm, this about which Albert Einstein said that if a human being cannot get enthusiastic about anything anymore like you are what the French call blasé, like bored, flat, plafonated, then automatically Albert Einstein said such a person is dead. They might be biologically still alive, but spiritually they have died since a while because enthusiasm it was shows the life of the spirit. Therefore, You have to find out what produces, what we are going to discuss and show in this retreat, is what makes you enthusiastic. Osho Rajneesh, in his provocative style, has a story. We don't even know if it's a real story or if he trumped it up because he was known to make up some tall tales. But that doesn't matter as well. It's for a pedagogical purpose. His point was this, that he saw people... 
he described the guy who could not focus and he tried different gurus, Swami Shivananda was alive in those days and others, and he tried different gurus and they all put on him more discipline, more discipline, more discipline, and he was practicing without enthusiasm. Diet, severe diet, not sleeping in the night, and all sorts of other such things. And when he came to Osho, Rajneesh called in those days Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, he gave to him a different story, a more tantric approach. He asked this elderly Indian man what made him really, what was he obsessed with? What was the thing which came to him most often? And this man, embarrassed being Indian, answered that he had to acknowledge that it was boobs. Women's breasts were the only thing. And Rajneesh told him, so imagine a beautiful breast in front of you and start sucking it. Like this. Imagine constantly that you suck a breast, a real beautiful breast. And according to this story, which again may be a tall tale, in three weeks this man became a great practitioner of pranayama because he was finally doing something which satisfied him. Instead of doing a dry yogic pranayama, he was sucking boobs. And this turned him on. For him, this was satisfactory. Thus, it is important, I say, to find, first of all, the things which motivate you indeed. If you come to yoga, why do you come to yoga? How many layers does your enthusiasm have? How much is your enthusiasm going to last? And which are the things which are perennial? Is there something for which you have been enthusiastic constantly for the last 10 or 20 years in your life? Maybe it's food, maybe it's sex, maybe it's movies, maybe it's computer games. Maybe like, is there something which turns you on? Could that thing be used as a giver of enthusiasm in your yoga practice? And that's why... In Agama, we have a methodology which is not only based on enthusiasm, but which is based also on this love of knowledge and also on commitment. Many people would say Swami Vivekananda and Agama in general is a school which gives an enormous knowledge. There are lineages of yoga that give to people one technique. You just learn Vipassana and you do it for the next 45 years. You just learn Kriya Yoga, the Kriya method, and you do it for the next 45 years. You just learn this or that style of meditation, and you do it for the next 45 years. Agama is an encyclopedic type of school for the very simple reason that I, Swami Vivekananda, am an encyclopedic type of person. And if you are an obsessive compulsive, and I'm not saying it in a pejorative way, I'm saying it in a very sweet and loving way, if you are an obsessive compulsive type of person who likes to do one thing 16 hours per day, then you will pass by Agama and soon go away, because it's not your dish. Agama is the school of people who do 225 techniques a little bit every day, not the school of the people who do one technique 16 hours every day. That among Agama pupils, sometimes you can find some who will find an extraordinary efficient technique 
and then they will do their 108 Udiana Bandhas the whole morning or something like that, that is possible. But it's not, it's part of the spirit of the school and it is not the spirit of the school. Here in Agama, I came to yoga with a great love of knowledge. All my teachers, I've asked them for knowledge and I wanted to know as much as possible. There are many, many things which I know and I haven't shared them with the disciples because it was not necessary or because some things were not urgent at that time. Like, you know, I'm doing chiropractice, a peculiar type of chiropractice. Very few pupils in the school know about it or know it or something. I never really taught much of this chiropractice, although I'm obtaining great, great, great success with it, and it's amazing. Therefore, you can say, why did Swami Vivekananda bother for a few years to learn chiropractice, when actually it's not the main thing which you see in Agama. In the same way, there are many, many other things which we know in Agama, I personally and the advanced students of Agama, the advanced teachers, and that is simply because this school is a school of jnana, it's a school of knowledge. Many people say, if you would have been in India, maybe you would have done five times more bhajans, kirtans, love, devotion, rolling on the floor, spinning like dervishes, shedding tears, maybe. But we are not. Therefore, there are others who do that. So in this world, there exist spiritual paths and orientations of different kinds, and uh, Agama's path is a path based on knowledge, on commitment, on encyclopedic knowledge. We love scientific research. We love rationalism and rational evidence and proofs. It is a path of sublimation, which means we can go into the lower things of life and sublime them. We are not like, oh, I'm not eating food cooked by my wife because she is menstruating today and I can't touch food cooked by a menstruating woman and so on. I can, because I can do my 100 with the Anabandas and it would sort that out any time. So therefore, tan uh, Agama is also a path of sublimation, a tantric path, relaxed in life and very intense in its practices. Uh, this is basically what I uh, want to convey in this retreat. That's why we made this retreat, because many people said... Swami, when you come to Agama, you see a whole lot of yoga techniques and you see a lot of this and the more you go through the levels, the more there is. And sometimes we need a bird's eye to see a little bit of what is the spirit of Agama, what is the difference between you and other gurus, between you and other styles of teaching and this school and so on. And I'm trying to outline even in advance tonight both as a presentation, because I was asked by the administration of the school to tell you what will happen in this uh, awakening of the spirit retreat. And at the same time, uh, because it's a satsang evening, and I'm trying to expand it also in a presentation of Agama's practice as such. So we are talking again about the five-day satsang. Well, I'll try to convey the spirit of Agama and the things which worked for me, the things which made me feel most enthusiastic, and um, how to do yoga with, uh, with motivation and with 
spirit in it, not in a mechanical way, not in an oxlile, not, not in a bovine way, that you are just doing it like a chore. Even the name of it created some waves, and when I made it, because some people didn't understand, they said, how can you awaken the spirit? Because the spirit in one of its meanings in English uh, means the immortal spirit, the eternal spirit, and that spirit uh, doesn't need to be awakened because it's eternal, it's unchanging. But still, the name of it is based on that because the spirit exists and yet it's not awakened in every human being. Actually, in most human beings, the spirit is asleep and um, the English word spirit comes from the Latin spiritus, which means breath mysteriously, where it, which it connects us with the Buddhist meditations, that breath is spirit, breathe, you are alive. The, the fact that you are breathing, it's related with the very consciousness. But also spiritus means spirit, courage, vigor, enthusiasm, and it is distinguished from the Latin word anima, spiritus and anima, anima means soul, and uh, this distinction is preserved in Greek, where the soul, the anima, is called pneuma, and, uh, I'm sorry, psyche, and then the spirit, which uh, is called pneuma, is like breath, motile, air, spirit, and so on. And that's why uh, the English speakers use this word spirit in several related contexts, one of them which is metaphysical, and one of them which is metaphorical. And metaphysically we say, and I even wrote it down, that's why I'm consulting my notes here, that in metaphysical I want to give the dictionary the appropriate definition, not to speak freely about it. The spirit is an incorporeal but ubiquitous, non-quantifiable substance or energy present individually in all living things. Unlike the concept of souls, often regarded as eternal and sometimes believed to pre-exist the body, a spirit develops and grows as an integral aspect of a living being. One might more properly term the, the type or the aspect of spirit, like life, like the bios in Greek, or ether, rather than the pneuma, other alternative of it in Greek. In religion and spirituality, the respiration of a human has, for obvious reasons, become seen as a strongly linked with the very occurrence of life. Spirit, in this sense, means that thing that separates a living body from a corpse and usually implies intelligence, consciousness, and sentience, the ability to feel, to perceive, and have subjective experiences. That, when you apply it in yoga, like the spirit of Agama, awakening of the spirit, the Agama retreat, also shows that yoga can be performed without spirit, and then it becomes dead. Like, everybody can learn the sun salutations, but when you do it by connecting with the sun, and with enthusiasm, and with resonance, and with chakras, and everything, then it becomes a sun salutation performed with spirit. The spirit, the word spirit has a few secondary meanings in the metaphorical meanings, and I quoted here at least five of them. The loyalty and feeling of inclusion in the social history or collective essence of an institution or group, such as in the school spirit or esprit de corps in French, the 
spirit of a, of a group. A closely related meaning refers in the worldview of a person, place or time as when we say that this act, this special act has been written in the spirit of John Smith or whoever and his concept of freedom and so on. So it's like zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the spirit of the time. It is also a synonym for vivacity, for being vivacious, like lively, where you say she performed this musical piece with spirit. Or you can speak about a lawyer, that he put up a spirited defense. No, so it's like spirit means then that you are very keen, very alive. That also is valid in the practice of yoga. Is your yoga practice dull or is it spirited? That's very, very important. The Chinese make a very big difference between qi as the different forms of prana and shen, the spirit, which is animating things at a deeper level. It's the psychomental and spiritual aspect of it. Another secondary meaning of the word spirit is like when you distinguish from the literal meaning in a text or in law, like the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, which are two distinct concepts. So what is the spirit of yoga? What is the spirit of agama? Because often yoga is performed as a fitness club gymnastics and the spirit of it is not there. The letter may be there because people are still doing some sun salutations. But where is the spirit of yoga? It, is it practiced in the spirit of itself or not? And of course, in mysticism, spirit or spirituality, where it, it represents existence in unity with the Godhead, the soul may also equate with spirit in some systems, but the soul involves certain individual human consciousness, while the spirit comes from beyond that. As a conclusion, just because I went through this textual part with you, the spiritualization of the human being, awakening of the spirit, is possible. An increase in spirit in one's life is possible. And that is the meaning of this awakening of the spirit, like increasing the spirit and making you familiar because we teach you yoga and it's a long process in which you are going through levels and levels of yoga and of course the teachers are giving you very spirited presentations and demonstrations and initiation and transmission and we can see that people are getting the spirit of yoga because they are getting enthusiastic and so on but then that needs to be reminded and that needs to be cultivated so that some of you, even when you have done yoga for 10 years, you still do it with spirit. You still do it with the proper enthusiasm and the proper implication, involvement in what is being done. Um, this was the presentation. Uh, to get started, I intend to continue, but uh, unlike in many, many other satsangs, in this satsang, I will take questions. They will not be recorded. Our technical team is not prepared for it because um, um, the questions are mostly for the part. People may want to ask questions about the awakening of the spirit in itself. But since I'm doing a continuity tonight and I crossed uh, the line anyway, I'm in the time of the satsang, 
I want in this satsang to give the opportunity to have a little bit of dialogue. So even if your questions are not going to be heard very clearly on the microphone of this recording, it doesn't matter because it's not uh, just uh, for the purpose of that. Therefore, feel free to ask me a few questions. Uh, again, in satsangs, I usually prefer to choose a topic and speak about it. And the questions are coming in our sessions of Q&As and others where, you can, uh, where we can go more in detail. But in tonight's satsang, I wanted, because I need to leave some time for the questions of the retreat itself, I wanted to make it like a dialogue, and that's why I will uh, also take questions. Right now, there is one of the breaks, one of the moments, where I could take some questions because I have finalized at least presenting something. I intend to continue if I will have time. If you are going to have 100 questions, then I will not continue, but it will be way more satisfactory because at least I will be able to answer to your needs, to your questions. So let's see if anybody wants to ask any question relative to the retreat or to the things which have been said about spiritual practice. Again, some of you are relative beginners in the Agama system and you haven't been confronted. I know that many beginners say, how could you get flat about this Agama thing? Because it's so exciting and it's like, if I learn every day these kinds of things, it's going to be amazing. But the mind is a monkey. And, uh, you know, you can buy yourself, if you are a testosterone man who is a lover of toys, you can buy yourself the greatest car in the world, either that's a sports car or it's a luxury car, whatever that means for you, and in three years you can get bored of it and look for something else. That's not because your car is not good or because your sexual partner is not good, or because yoga is not good. It's simply because the mind is a pathetic monkey, and it's based on some electrochemical activity, hormones, and other things. And sometimes it gives flops. It gives flopped reactions. And in spirituality, we definitely need to learn to go beyond these, because otherwise we would fall in love with Jesus, would love him for three years, and then we'd get bored of Jesus and look for someone else to fall in love with or for something else to do. And you know very well that that's not what's happening in the actual spirituality, that people who are of spiritual fiber, the men and the women who did these things, were people who lived a whole life in the service of an ideal and of an idea, people who are really aligned with something great, and of course they went through some superficial levels of boredom or flatness, but they have learned to compensate it with the real values, with the deeper values from inside, which is what keeps a spiritual practitioner on the path and which comes from the aspiration. So here is some time. Again, it's not compulsory that you have. In case there will be no questions, I will continue with some of the ideas which we cherish a lot in Agama, but uh, I will also be very, very happy if you address questions so that uh, it becomes a more live dialogue answering to some of your uh, needs or questions here. Please, just say it loud, that's all.
Uh, I would say, so he asked what is the, which are the main characteristics of a spiritual practitioner to be able to cross through these uh, uh, challenges. And um, we can guide ourselves from the example of the Buddha. The Buddha himself, after he has been pampered and spoiled like a prince and like a king to be, one day, in just one day, he saw the dark aspects of human life. He saw old age, he saw death, he saw disease and pain, and suddenly this electroshocked him. And it electroshocked him for life, not for one year, not for six months. Like in the, how many, everybody has looked around and has seen dead people, sick people, distorted, maimed people, people in pain, people that are getting, and yet Buddha exploded when he saw it. Buddha saw it and he said, what? And I am going to be all these as well? Like that's unacceptable, you know, it's like you burn me with a red hot iron, you know, it's like something in me jolts vertically and I'm standing to this challenge, I'm standing to this image, like it's unacceptable. And Buddha, like a young enthusiast, he was not even so young anymore when he did, he started into the search of the solution to the human suffering. That was his idealistic view. He simply said, is humanity condemned to just disease, old age, death and suffering of all the kinds? That's all there is? No, and I just have to put my head down and to say, uh, yeah, uh, what to do? No, he said, no, I better die searching. You know, it's like I simply don't accept that life is such a dreary, dull, terrible thing with a bad end like that and so on. It can't be that ugly. And therefore, the characteristic which Buddha had was that he reacted and his aspiration went up. You can say that Buddha was afraid. Like many, many Christian saints, and not only, they say you should go in the cremation ground or in the graveyard and meditate on death and on your own death. Can you see yourself with dust in your mouth and eaten by the worms? You know, it's like, can you confront death? Are you really cool about it? What if tonight is the last night of your life and tomorrow you are dead? Can you look into it? And then the first reaction which anybody does when you do this is fear. I have tried it. Many of you have tried it. And you know it. The first thing is that actually we panic. There is an animal claustrophobic fear to the fact that we lose all options and all choices and there are no more. And we are forced into something which is irreversible apparently. And all that. And therefore, first we get a fear. But that fear is exactly like the Christian expression that a person is fearing God, is a God-fearing person. God-fearing is actually a quality. It's a praise-worthy word in the old culture. When you say about John that John is a God-fearing man, it means he's decent, he's moral, he's ethical, he's not doing terrible things precisely because he's God-fearing. So when you are God-fearing, it's actually good. If you are afraid of death, Either you start taking drugs and getting drunk all day long to forget about your fear, or like Buddha, you stand up and say there must be a solution to this. I cannot live in this fear. I cannot live with the Damocles' sword hanging above my head and maiming and destroying everything which is noble in my life because I'm living like a life in fear and expectation. So a spiritual seeker, first of all, uh, must have this aspiration, 
this longing, like I want to discover immortality, I want to see if there is nirvana, I want to see what this moksha or mukti about the whole India was speaking about, what is it, does it exist? Why did the Christian saints and others talk about divinization or salvation? What does it mean to have salvation? When you die, where do you go? And what's going to happen to you? And all that. And that's why I'm saying, uh, that because you are asking, uh, no, what is the first uh, condition? First condition is that you must not lose hope. You must see a light in the end of the tunnel. And you must have the courage and the determination to seek for that life in the end of the tunnel. And say, even if it's going to cost me my life, even if it's going to take the next 40 years of my life, I'm going to do it because life without it, it becomes a horror. It becomes just a dark thing where I'm trying to forget constantly about the woes of life. And every time when I'm confronted with them, I'm going neurotic. And I'm going to say, oh, why was that and why was that? No, like, you look at the, all the media. I look at the media from various, various countries. Most of the news are all sorts of blames about why did that person die because there was too much heat wave? Why did that person die because there was a cold wave? Why did, like, people die. The funny thing is that the doctors have never stopped anybody from dying, really. Everybody dies. The fact that you can postpone it six months or six years is just a palliative. It's just a little postponement. It doesn't solve the problem. So ultimately, we complain that why people die. Of course, everybody complains. If, if somebody could reckon, have a reckoning with God, you'd slap him on the face and say, why did you make us die? Death is such terrible and frightening. I worked a whole life to accumulate a truckload of money, and now I have to leave them to some descendants who are just a bunch of losers and they don't deserve it. You know? And I have to let go of my hard-earned money and leave them to God knows who who will do God knows what with them. Like Death is a formidable detachment. Ultimately, but people don't want this detachment because this detachment hurts. It's painful. And then people would try to say, let me still have my attachment and forever. It doesn't exist. It, metaphysically, it's not possible. So thus, what I'm trying to say is that uh, many people try to lie to themselves and try to muddle it down. If suddenly they get afraid of death, they try to look the other way. While Buddha said, no, I will look into it and I will let it hurt me and scare me until it would determine me to pull the thumb out of that place and do something about it because I cannot live my life in this unconscious, threatening way. And that's why um, the, the first characteristic is, again, not to lie to yourself and to stand up to the challenge. Because life in itself is like an alarm bell. When you are born, you have to die. Wherever there is pleasure, there will be pain. Wherever there is light, there will be darkness. There is no way to stop these things. question is, can you cope with them? Buddha has found a way of coping with it. And he said, I found a way out of suffering. And the main cause of suffering is ignorance. Therefore, you have, first of all, you have to develop the right knowledge and all that. 
this is what is necessary for for dealing with it. This alive spirit, like to, yeah, if I'm afraid of death, I should stimulate it every day and not run away from it because death is coming, that's guaranteed, you can take it to the bank and why am I trying to tell myself that death is not coming? There are people who die young, there are people who die old, it's coming. And thus, I have to stand to this challenge. Life is a challenge because it puts me in touch with what is transient, limited, ephemeral, and then I have to find out if there is inside me, indeed, something which is eternal and which can last this element of destruction. And again, some people are trying to bury it under alcohol, drugs, having 15 children, having a career, so as to forget about this scare. And some people say, no, I'll face it bravely, and I will do whatever can be done according to my capacities. That's, that's what it takes. We call it often aspiration, because for many people, it's an irrational thing. Some people cannot maybe articulate it in the words in which I articulated it, like they can't put words on it, but they simply say, I have to do this. I don't know why, but I just have to do this. It's something which is calling me. It's something which is coming from my heart. And I can't stop it. I have to find something about this. Please feel free to continue for a while. If they will run dry of them, I will continue. Please. First of all, you have to find out what created it in the beginning. Like, how come that you became enthusiastic a while ago? You became enthusiastic because you heard about Shambhala or because you heard that there is a way to transcend death and ephemeralness or there, there is a way to be happy and so on. Well, that still exists. That answer is still valid. The question is still there. The answer is still there. So how come that you have gone away from that question and from that answer? Why are that question and that answer no longer relevant for you? And you have, then you discover when you search for it, you discover that actually they are relevant. But they are not relevant in an infatuating way. Like there is a way of experiencing the emotion more organically, and that is produced by some chemistry in your brain. Your brain releases some hormones and you are like, <gasps> I have butterflies in my stomach about this. And then if that hormone disappears, is the interest still there? Like you don't have this lining of the biological thing, reaction. But still, on a deeper layer, your interest is there. Your soul is still vibrating for that answer. So you just have to replace one stimulation with the other one. You have to go a little bit deeper to find that there is a level of thrill which does not vary with diet and season and shape of your body and things like that. So you have to, you have to replace it. And of course, sometimes uh, spirituality finds palliative things. For example, the Tibetan yogis had created a very baroque system of yoga, like the baroque style in art, convoluted, charged up, very complicated. 
And the Tibetan yoga contains hundreds of initiations and lineages and texts and commentaries and this. And there is always something more that you could learn. And the secret lama on 500 kilometers away on a mountain has the commentary of the six yogas of Naigyu, not the six yogas of Naropa. No? And if you would uh, listen to those, you would get more. And then you just keep on fishing for new techniques, and each one of them is like a new toy, and is bringing new spirituality, new, uh, new enthusiasm, new aspiration. Part of this is something which you use in Agama, where people learn so many yoga techniques stronger and stronger, and every time you can hear even advanced students in yoga, that they say, wow, now that I have learned this, I've really come to something which is amazing. It's like I'm fresh. I'm in the first level intensive after six years of yoga because now I've discovered an initiation which changes everything. Ultimately, some people would say that this can also be seen as psychological mechanisms to keep the practice alive. So it is not forbidden at all that you do something to diversify your practice so as you keep yourself interested. Still time for questions at this time. If not, I will tell you a few other outlines of what characterizes, because I started with this spirit of Agama, with this awakening of the spirit, because of the retreat which will happen next week. And then I wanted to give you some outlines in the satsang exactly about this spirit of yoga and spirit of Agama. And one of the things, because I see there are not questions at this point, I'll give you the opportunity a bit later to see if you uh, then you want to uh, ask something about those things, is of course illustrated by the very motto which you can see on the site of Agama and on many of our materials, where Agama is accompanied by the little sentence, choose evolution. Everybody realizes intuitively, I don't need to do a metaphysical workshop. I explain these things in the metaphysical workshops. But I don't need to go there. Everybody realizes intuitively that somewhere, somehow, there must exist a phenomenon of growth, of evolution. Either you are total atheistic, materialistic skeptics, people full of a certain amount of cynicism, and you think that the human race is just an accidental DNA on a planet in this universe, and life has no meaning, and it has no creator, and it goes nowhere, and that's why, pff, what evolution? The only evolution I can think about is Darwinistic evolution, that uh, there occurred a mutation in a baboon or a chimpanzee, and we became humans from 48 chromosomes, we moved to 46 chromosomes. That's the only evolution some people can think about. And then some people think, okay, one day we're going to be replaced by machines. Or one day there's going to be some X-men appearing around here. And they're going to take over. And uh, that's it. You know, there will be a new genetical st string of some sort. But 
truly, if you think a little bit in your heart, in your souls, everybody realizes that common sense, we all believe in the fact that there is a growth, a development, like the fact that you are alive right now, and you are learning some things, and you are making some efforts to sit up straight, to use whatever tools to learn, to practice morality and ethics, to refrain from stealing or from violence or from this or from that, is not an effort which will remain without an effect. Like it leads somewhere. This is illustrated beautifully by the saying of Krishna in the famous Bhagavad Gita, when Krishna says, on this path of yoga, no effort ever remains unrewarded. Like, there is no effort which will not yield result. It's like you are building a wall, and today I'm lazy, and I can lay one brick, and then I want to take a break and have some fun. But tomorrow when I come to continue the wall... That brick is still there. I laid it and I don't need to put one brick in its stead. It's laid there and it, now I can continue. So Krishna says exactly this in Bhagavad Gita. If you do an effort now, like if, for example, if you open your heart chakra now, then in your next life, of course Krishna thinks in the Hindu-Buddhistic way, maybe you don't believe in a next life, but then you have to think in other evolutionary terms, whatever is valid for you, because I'm not trying to indoctrinate you here with the idea of reincarnation. If you like it, use it, and if you don't like it, then find whatever fits for you best. But Krishna, using this idea, says... If you activate your heart chakra very much now, in your next life your heart chakra will be already activated. It stays. You don't need to do that work once more. Even as a baby, you are going to be a baby with a huge heart chakra. And therefore, every effort stays. It is preserved. And if every effort stays... It means we are going somewhere because we are building and building and building and building until when? Until what? Like, even if we are materialistic, we can say we come from baboons. But the question is, what do we go into? What's the next step? We know the previous step. What's the next step? If I'm coming from a gorilla, what is the superhuman level? Angel, deity... What am I becoming as I'm becoming more evolved? Many people don't even ask. They, for the first time when we keep this kind of lectures, they start thinking, what is evolution? Did you ever think, like all the people that you've known in your life, who are evolved and who are not so evolved? Like I'm asking, which of your friends were short in stature and which of your friends were tall? You can tell me. If I will ask you which of your friends had sharp intelligence until now, and which of your friends had a less sharp intelligence, you will tell me. And then if I'm asking you which of your friends do you think were more like gorillas, and which of your friends were more like angels and deities. Like I can simply ask the question, which of your friends do you think, according to your judgment, which do you think were more evolved, and which do you think were less evolved? 
And then suddenly you are going to see that the question makes sense. Like it's maybe a bit politically incorrect or like I never thought about it that way, but it makes sense. And that is because somewhere in the background, every human being has got the feeling that there exists an evolution, a self-improvement, a personal growth, a development of some sort. And of course, if you are materialistic, you think, too bad, because I've worked a whole lifetime to become wiser, and then I die, and then what comes is nothing. So all of it has been wasted. Or maybe I write a book like Isaac Newton, or like William Shakespeare, and that book will contribute to the wisdom lore of humanity. So there is a sort of growth, but not for me as individual, for humanity by accumulation of the books and discoveries and philosophies and other ethics and moralities and things like that. But everybody has this feeling that there must exist an evolution. If there is no evolution, it's like the whole game of life, and it's like the whole game of the universe, it becomes a sadistic wheel which goes around and leads nowhere, and it's like without a purpose. It's such an unfortunate accident that some dust has become conscious and says, who am I, when it goes nowhere, and all this effort is lost and wasted. That's why in spirituality, either it's Christian or Hindu or Buddhist or of whichever kind, in spirituality you all know that there is a feeling of evolution, that the human being is animalistic, primitive, undeveloped, dark, demonic, something, and it can improve and go into something angelic, divine, compassionate, loving, wise, and so on and so forth. And that is precisely what motivates yoga. Great yogis have spoken so clearly about this, and great yoga texts speak so clearly. Either you read Yogananda or Ramakrishna, or you read Geranda Samhita or the Bhagavad Gita, you see it's there. Like, the idea of evolution is clearly outlined there, and this is one thing which makes part of the spirit of Agama and of the spirit of yoga of which I wanted to speak. Like when people do yoga in a spirited way, not in a dull, automatic, mechanical way, when people do yoga, Tantra, Sufi Dervish dancing, Kabbalistic meditations and others, when people do them in the right spirit, then automatically people care about evolution. Because it's obvious that spirituality is just a manner, a way of contributing to your evolution. If somebody goes into a Buddhist monastery, Tibetan or Thai or Japanese, if somebody goes into an Indian ashram or in a Christian monastery, and they pray, they meditate, they do spiritual practice, isn't automatically your intuitive, even though you didn't read this in books and you haven't been told it before some, for some of you, isn't the intuition and the common sense saying clearly that that person will evolve, that that person will become a better human being, a more complete human being. Therefore, this is a very, very important idea, this idea of evolution. That's why 
when I was asked which I consider better, this was one of my favorites for expressing Agama's spirit, you know, because it's about choosing evolution. If I go to a gym and I just want to bend over and sweat, and then in the night I'm taking some stupid drugs and fighting, and then I molest my girlfriend or whatever I do, that's not evolution. I'm doing yoga, and it so happens, unfortunately, that that yoga is just a gymnastics and a stretching. And meanwhile, I'm doing animalistic and violent and ugly activities in my life. And in the end of the day, when I draw the line, after two hours of yoga and ten hours of beastly behavior, I have got a minus. I've actually involved, not evolved. So, that is, you are doing yoga, but it's not in the spirit of yoga. You are betraying the spirit of yoga. You do something which is labeled yoga, but it is not according to the spirit of it. The spirit of yoga is choose evolution. Like, not everybody does. The yogis of India tell us that evolution is a pretty automatic phenomenon. Like, either you choose to evolve or not, you are still going to evolve because God wants you to evolve. If you don't like God, then call it by the Buddhist name, Dharma. The Dharma, the order of the universe, the way things are, the righteousness of this universe. If you don't like even Dharma, then just use uh, the word, the watered-down word, which is used by the Westerners when they don't want to personify any divine aspect. Life. Life. Life itself wants you to evolve. And thus evolution is not an option. It happens anyway. But there is a huge difference. Because for some people evolution happens automatically. And the best image which I give to this is this. Imagine that you are swimming in a river. And for the time being you are making no effort. You are just treading the water. You are just staying there and kind of floating. But you are on a river. And what's happening to the river? It flows. So after two hours you will be somewhere else than where you were two hours ago. And thus, there exists an evolution which is general and which is like a current in the ocean or like the flow of a river. Which means not only you, everybody on this planet evolves. The problem with that automatic evolution is twofold. One of them is that the automatic evolution is taking a hell of a long time because the river is slow. And the great yogi like Yogananda gives even this, like Yogananda was a Capricorn and a very pragmatic utilitarian type of person and he had a university degree so he always felt like he wanted to be very scientific, very modern. And the evaluation of Yogananda, some people can say, how did he know? Okay, it doesn't matter from where he knew. This is the evaluation of a great yogi. Yogananda said, an average human being, like imagine the perfectly average human being. We're not talking about Ramakrishna and Albert Einstein, and we're not talking about Jack the Ripper and Genghis Khan. We're talking about the average human being. Yogananda says the average human being needs approximately one 
million years to reach to a state of higher, to the threshold, to the graduation day, to finish this stage of human existence. If one life happens every 500 years, then you need, in the Hindu understanding, Hindu-Buddhistic, then you need approximately 2,000 lifetimes from now. And you are average, which means there have been 2,000 before. No, that, that's pretty much. No, If you had 2,000 lifetimes until now, and you are going to have another 2,000, where you are going to again be an ignorant child, suppressed by your parents, a tormented teenager, looking for your way in life, trying to form a personality, being tormented about your sexual identity and things, trying to make a career, trying to put bread and butter on your table, taking care of others, seeing people getting old and sick and dying all around you. And it's just running in the same circle again. After you did it 2,000 times, you're going to do it another 2,000 times. Many people would say, over my dead body, is there any alternative? Like, is there a green pill? You know, in this, like, I want to know what this matrix is. Because I don't have time to wait for a million years. Like some people say, I do. Good. Good for you. It's okay. If you do, be happy. Smile. Put a smiley face. And wait for the sun to rise and to set. That's all it takes. But if not, then there is a need. And this is the need for choosing evolution. That's why we say. Because there, is, there exists an automatic evolution. But once you get fed up with it. You have to look for the alternative. And, and the second downside of this automatic evolution is this. People don't want to develop because to become from a selfish gorilla, to become a selfless angel, it doesn't go linearly. I have known in my life lots of selfish, egocentric, demonic, violent ugly people and so on, they could have had moments of niceness like Don Corleone. No? He was nice to his kids and to his wife. Or so, but he was a murderer, a mafia murderer ultimately. So he was a mixture. In his case, the demonic part was taking 90% and he had the 10% nice part. So was Hitler who was in love with a woman and loved her till the end of his life. So was Stalin who was worshipping his grandchildren. So was Mao Zedong who was every day making love with two young girls to keep his mojo alive and so on. Like there were many people who today are considered monsters and mass murderers and so on. And they had nice parts to their personality. And to some people they behaved really sweet and nice. So... I'm saying I have known many people who would be very selfish, very materialistic, very violent, very this and that. And then if somebody is telling, don't worry, there is an evolutionary energy coming from the constellation of the Pleiades. And it's going to make these people really nice and compassionate and loving and generous. When? How? I've never seen it happening in my life. Did I see people who are grudgy, angry, bad temperament, ugly temperament becoming nicer? Yes. Usually when they got over, run over by a car and when they were put in a wheelchair and then suddenly they became helpless and humble and they had to start begging to everybody for help. 
So the unfortunate truth is that there are some people on the face of this earth, and I hope you are part of that minority, who want to evolve, who want to develop through their own goodwill. Like they realize, I'm not loving enough. Sometimes I can see that I'm a selfish bastard, and I want to be more loving. I'm not compassionate enough. I am not intelligent enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not detached enough. And I'm trying. Yesterday I wanted to be a bit violent towards somebody, even if it was verbal violence and not physical violence. The day before yesterday I thought about stealing something. The other day this and that. I told a lie and so on. Like I can see that I have imperfections and I'm trying to work on those imperfections and to make myself a better human being from one day to the next. Not idealistically, not perfectionistically, but at least as much as it is humanly possible and as it is humanly feasible. Some people do that out of their own accord. These are the people usually who you find in religions, philosophies, in self-development, in self-improvement. These are the people who want to grow up. And then there is a much larger number of people who don't give a rat's ass about that, and they say, ah, blah, 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 blah. So who cares? What difference will it make? Blah, 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 blah. And those people will never put their shoulder into it. But remember, they are on a river, and they evolve. So Mother Nature has to make them evolve. And how does Mother Nature make people evolve? By confronting them with the results of their own actions, what the Buddhists call karma, by confronting them with their own limitations. Like you are a nasty person, and you tell nasty things to everybody all the time, and then when you are 50 years old, you have no friends, no lovers, nobody around you. That's the consequence of your own lifestyle. Who lives by the sword, said Jesus, dies by the sword. If you don't want to die by the sword, don't live by the sword. And thus, Mother Nature can make people evolve. But that evolution is usually accompanied by pain. Like if you are too too attached to your family, and you even killed somebody because of your family, then Mother Nature can make that all your family will disappear in a tsunami. And then you are left butt naked and alone. And you start thinking, why did I do all that thing? Ten years ago I killed somebody for my family. And now my family has become shadows and dust. It's not there. So was it worth it? Why did I do all that? And then you start becoming wise. And you become more detached, more forgiving, more loving... But meanwhile, you got a beating to learn that lesson. Mother Nature is using coercive and violent methods for educating you, unlike the modern educational systems for kids. And because of that, this is the second downside, that this automatic evolution is painful. It takes a million years, and in those million years, you are going to see plague, famine, war, revolutions... Domestic and social violence, betrayal, disease, pain, this, that. 
Not because nature is sadistic, but because you need to learn a lesson and the river cannot allow you to lag behind your evolution forever. You have to be kicked from behind. And as a stupid proverb says, every kick in the ass is also a step forward. Like when you get a kick in the ass, it hurts and it's actually a kick in the ass. But it also pushes you an inch forward. So there is a good side to getting kicks in the ass as well. So that's what Mother Nature does. If you don't, if you want to become more generous, Mother Nature doesn't need to force you to become more generous. Because you need to become more generous if you want to become a god or an, or an angel. Not that you want, but you have to. It's on the duty, it's on the to-do list. No? And therefore, if you have to become more generous, there are two ways. Either you come to a yoga school and you start practicing generosity, non-violence, this, that, and every time you catch yourself red-handed, you slap your own wrist and you say, today I have been a greedy asshole and I forgot to be generous and tomorrow I'm going to try better. And then Mother Nature leaves you alone. Like this one is swimming in the river. Good. Nothing to do with this one. This one is not laying on the job. But if you are lying on the job, then Mother Nature has to do something. Because the clock is ticking and the river has to flow. And that's why, remember, this, which we say in metaphysical workshops, because there are pseudo-gurus and pseudo-evolutionary people who don't fulfill this need. They say, you don't need to do anything. I trust in nature. I trust in evolution. Just watch the sunset. Everything is wonderful as it is. I also trust the nature. And I trust the nature to give kicks in the ass of everybody who doesn't do anything. And that's not the kind of image which I want to see. And that's why this is a lie. The people who give this kind of teachings... They are not accelerating anybody's evolution. And they could sell donuts as well. It's more pleasant to eat donuts than like, why, why then speak about evolution if you don't want to accelerate it? The essence of spirituality and of yoga, like in Agama, is that we think that if you stand on your head, if you do Laya Yoga, if you practice sexual Tantra, if you do this and if you do that, in five years you are going to go forward as much as on the river you would have gone in 5,000 years. Like yoga and any spiritual method, dervish dancing or prayer of the heart in Christianity or you name it, is just a method to go faster. Why would you go faster? Because you don't want to go slower. If you are saying, you know what? I'll flow with the river. From time to time I'll encounter plague and war and loss of family. And deprivation. And it's okay, I accept all that. And I'm just going to slowly, 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 slowly go to the delta of that river and reach the ocean. Good. You have my compassion, honestly. But good, if that's your choice, do it your way. But the spiritual people like Ramakrishna and Vivekananda... They did not want to wait. They said, why would I wait a million years when it's going to happen anyway? And I'm just supposed to sit here like a sitting duck and just wait for me to 
to be thrown into the ocean. But I can swim. I can take a motorboat. I can phone for a helicopter to pick me up and drop me into the ocean. Like, there's no need to wait for a million years. That is the spirit of yoga. The yogis who invented yoga in India and in Tibet, this was one of their main things, evolution. We do yoga to evolve. And the question is, if I just do a bit of sun salutations, and do I evolve? Not per se. But if I do sun salutations and I activate my heart chakra, then I do evolve a little bit faster. And if I do sun salutations and I start feeling the presence of the sun, then I also evolve a little bit more. So there is sun salutation and then there is sun salutation. Not all the sun salutations, not all the Paschimottanasanas, not all the yoga things are having the same effect unless they are done in a certain spirit with a certain spirit. And again, for me, it's very important to talk to you about this spirit of evolution because intuitively when I say it, everybody say, yeah, I knew it. Like, of course, it's common sense. But if you do not verbalize it, if you don't bring it at the level of the conscious mind, you cannot see the implications of it. The question is, for example, let's say some of you say, I do yoga. And you therefore, you have accelerated your evolution. Because you are doing yoga in a school which is evolutionary yoga, not backbending yoga. And you are doing that. And then the question is, how fast? Is your motorboat going? Are you going to reach the ocean by the end of the day? Or are you planning to reach the ocean in two days? What's your plan, really? Like you're just riding chaotically like this, then you could as well flow, flow with the river. Like if you ride, if you take a boat, you must have a travel plan. What's the travel plan? How fast do you want to travel on this river of life. When would you like to reach the fruition? Because Paramahamsa Yogananda, who is the same engineering type of yogi, no, he was not an engineer, but he had some technicalities of it. He claims that by practicing a certain number of hours per day, like eight hours of intense practice per day, one can reach the ocean in three years. Well, between a million years and three years, it's quite a huge difference. And it might be worth it. Like somebody could say, why don't I invest three, four, five, six years of my life in this? Then I can do a thousand other projects if I still am interested in those. And thus, uh, you have to think very creatively about evolution. How evolved are you? Are you more a gorilla or more an angel? How do you evaluate actually evolution? By the fact that people are kind or, as I say in metaphysical workshops, Ludwig van Beethoven, who was one of the geniuses of humanity, not a great spiritual guru or something, Ludwig van Beethoven said, for me there is only one sign of evolution, and that is goodness. That was his opinion. He said, if I see that a human being is good, 
good, good, like kind-hearted, that person is evolved. If I see that the person is not good, that person is a gorilla for me, is under average. So the question is, if you would be meeting tomorrow with Ludwig van Beethoven, would he think you are an evolved human being or not? Are you below average or are you above average? This question of evolution is very, very pertinent. And when we do metaphysical workshops, we speak about its parallels with the biological evolution. We speak about the fact that uh, it, it can be, it's just a one-way process and there is usually no involution or devolution except in some very limited understandings of it. And the list of issues could be continued a lot. There is a, the, the evolutionary process must have, first of all, um, a sort of a graduation point. Because all the spiritualities in this world, they say that Krishna, Jesus, Buddha, and so on, they reach something special. They are passing a certain threshold. And that also Milarepa and Rumi and St. Teresa of Avila and others like them, they also reach that threshold. So it's possible for the human beings to reach. There is a graduation. Like if you evolve and evolve and evolve and evolve and evolve, then there comes a point where the human limitations are surpassed. There, is, there exists, uh, many metaphysicians have put the point that if you make an animal humanize, like you have a pet in the house, and instead of treating it with a certain humoristic detachment, you know, because pets are like pets, you know, like anybody who had a pet or an animal knows they are funny. But you don't really try to make them human, like you give them a sweater and uh, you start talking to them and so on, because they are animals. And metaphysicians have said it long time ago, if you take a pet and humanize it too much, it will soon die. Because its level of evolution has surpassed the animal body in which it is, and its soul seeks for a more advanced body in which to go, because this body becomes like a stone, like a lodestone, it's holding it back in its evolution. So in the same way with a human being. Which is the level where the human body becomes insufficient for your evolution and you can move to the next level? What's that next level? What comes after and how many of those there are? So there are many, many aspects when we talk about evolution which are very thrilling and existentially very relevant. That's why we speak about enlightenment, nirvana, liberation, salvation, and we talk about freedom or bondage, if you are in the process or you are out of the process. And uh, this is how we define the existence of the methods of spiritual practice. Because methods of spiritual practice are supposed to do something to your evolution, to Step on the gas to, do, to, to accelerate it. And then, just to mention it, because I don't intend to stay much more tonight, again, I will leave you the possibility for a few final questions. Of course, hundreds of questions arise from this. Um, <clears throat> is this, if there exists an evolution of the individual, then what happens to the community? What happens to the planet Earth? Who is born on the planet Earth? Like 5,000 years ago, the people who were born on the planet Earth, 
globally speaking, averagely speaking, were much fewer, right? There were a million people on the whole planet or something. Those one million people were more evolved souls or more primitive souls, like the generation of Krishna and Arjuna or the generation of King David of the Jews or others and others. The average citizen in those days was a person who was more divine or more gorilla than today. Is humanity evolving or are there some cycles of history which make that higher souls, lower souls are present in human bodies on the face of this earth? So we are coming to the very interesting issue of what's the plan? Is there a plan? Like when you do farming, there is a plan that in the spring you plant this and in the summer you plant that. Is there such a plan on earth? That when do different spirits appear in the history of the earth? And is there somebody like Shambhala that coordinates this, that keeps an eye on this process? These are all very relevant issues. And that's why you see when yoga becomes a little bit philosophical, that's when it becomes yoga. I'm always enchanted by the fact that the Greek philosophers that accompanied Alexander the Great when he conquered half of the known world and went to Greece, they had an amazing spirit. Because those Greek philosophers, when they went to India, they have known especially the western part of India, today's Pakistan and a little bit of today's India, they have known yogis. They, inevitably, they met yogis. And they spoke to them and they asked the people around who are these guys and what they are doing. And then when they wrote in their chronicles, like we've been to India and we found these guys, they gave them a wonderful name. They found a wonderful name. They called the yogis because they wanted to give them a Greek name. The word yoga was Sanskrit and didn't mean anything to them. And they called them in Greek, gymnosophists, gymnosophists. Like philosophists with gymno, with gymnastics. These were gymnastics philosophers. They are people who are trying to reach to philosophy with the help of gymnastics. Like gymnastics was part... So it's not a gymnastics, it's a philosophical gymnastics. It's a gymnastics which makes the human being into a philosopher, into a wise man or a wise woman. Those are very important things to remember. And with this, I intend to conclude. I, I just wanted to show you a few things of this spirit of Agama and spirit of yoga. You practice yoga, but you are completely unconcerned with your evolution as a human being. And you don't even make an effort to stand up, to grow up evolutionarily. What yoga are you doing then? Because yoga is automatically associated with a great process of self-improvement and development of the human being. Enough of that. I would like to leave space today exceptionally because of the presentation which I did and because this is so related to the uh, retreat itself. And I know that, alas, some of you are in intensive teacher training programs and others, and you won't have the possibility this year to come to this retreat. But definitely you will be able to catch it some other time. And uh, again... I would like our satsang tonight to bear also the little mark of the dialogue. So if you want to address 
any further question, adding to those two or three which already were there, please, we, I can give you a few more minutes for that. Just speak it loud, I'll repeat it for the sake of the microphone, and then I'll answer. There are two ways of explaining this end. One of them, oh, the question was, what, what does it look like in the end? What is the end of this process? And um, this end has been described in two ways. One dualistic, svadistanistic, romantic way for the kindergarten people to get an image which is uh, fit to their understanding, and then there is a more metaphysical advanced, but much more hard to bite type of thing, which is closer to the truth, but it's not just a fairy tale on Zvadistana. It's more like the truth. The, the sugar-coated version is that the human being becomes what the Sanskrit texts call a Jivan Mukta, or what Buddhists call an enlightened being, a Buddha, and the Buddha, or, an in, or a Jivan Mukta, is a person of knowledge. It's somebody who has eliminated the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is ignorance. Buddha is not ignorant. Buddha can be called anything, but not ignorant. And since he sorted out ignorance, for Buddha, the suffering of the universe has disappeared. And because of this, he is wise... He is not scared by death, by anything. All those things which scared him as a kid didn't scare him anymore. A woman brings her little baby and says, Buddha, bring my baby back to life. And Buddha says, find me a house where nobody died. She doesn't. <clears throat> and then Buddha says, you see, there is not a single house in the village where death does not strike. So death is inevitable. It's the law of nature. Why do you come and ask me, Buddha? to violate the law of nature and artificially revive your child when it's going to die again anyway. Death and life, young or old, it's happening anyway. So Buddha is a person who is detached in matter of life and death and he's not attached to anything and he doesn't have a suffering that here is a child which dies. He can understand the pain of the mother because she is ignorant and she feels like a huge absence, the lack of her child, but otherwise Buddha is unconcerned and smiles because he knows death is perfectly natural and nothing bad has happened, actually. So the, the, the finality of this process is a Buddha-like being who is unafraid, free, knowledgeable, who doesn't lose continuity of consciousness, who has reached salvation, like the Christian saints say, you go to the right hand of God in a place where there is permanent ecstasy, you go in beatitude and bliss, and spend there all eternity. You go in a timeless, spaceless situation, I, I was about to say place, but it's not even a place if it's spaceless, and then in that existential condition, you go in bliss. Even in India, one of the three dimensions of this spiritual development is called Ananda, Satchit Ananda. Ananda is bliss. And that's why many people, when they talk about success in meditation, they sometimes call it ecstasy. Not the chemical ecstasy, the pills taken by the hippies for beautiful evenings, but 
the ecstasy, the real ecstasy, the bliss of beatitude and of eternal life. So the sugar-coated description is a sort of a romantic description which describes a sort of a superman, sort of a superwoman, somebody who is free, somebody who can walk on water, somebody who can stop the storms, somebody who can see the future and the past, sometimes who is unconcerned about the future and the past because lives in the present moment and is free, somebody who is full of bliss, somebody who experiences santosha spontaneously, which means contentment, and lives completely happy of everything that happens, even if a tsunami comes in Indonesia, it's still something in the economy of God, and it has happened with a purpose in this nature. Therefore, it's necessary, it was there for a purpose. It doesn't mean that if I could have prevented it, I wouldn't have prevented it, but since I couldn't have prevented it, then there is nothing to do for the time being about it. And so the, the list could continue. And this is the sugar-coated, like we are describing a, a condition of pure existence, pure consciousness, and pure bliss, sat, chit, ananda. We are describing the condition of Buddha, which is nirvana, ecstasy without end, and there is no more death, no more life, like Buddha said it clearly. I shall never incarnate again in this physical world. Like my evolution among people as a physical creature is over. I'm not coming back here. Doesn't mean he couldn't, says metaphysics, metaphysicians, because he could choose to come out of compassion, but he will not come because he needs. Like he's not a pupil in the school. He's a visiting guest in the school, and that's a different status. And this is the sugar-coated, and I could, this sugar-coated thing is very, very blissful and very, very beautiful. Every religion and every spirituality has tried to show a part of it. For example, the Hindus call it mukti, moksha. They simply say, karma cannot act upon you. You are not going to have karma. And because you are not going to have karma, you are not going to have incarnations, you are not going to have karmic repercussions, there is no more chain for you. You are free of chains. They insisted on Freedom. But Buddhists, Buddha, Bodha, Buddha is similar with the planet Mercury in astrology, is knowledge, is enlightenment. So it doesn't matter if you incarnate or not, but you are all-knowing, you are enlightened, you know everything. Because the problem as presented from by Buddha was ignorance. And the solution to it is no ignorance, no more ignorance. And so Buddhism insists more on the part of knowledge. Christianity insists more on the part of bliss, that you go in a place where the angels are playing their harps, and it's eternal and so on, and you drink ambrosia forever and ever. And on the aspect of love, that you are a beloved child of God, and you are basking in the love of God. So the, the, in the, the Christian paradise is a little bit more kinesthetic. It's like you are embraced. It's not about knowledge. It's not about freedom. It's mostly about being loved and being in bliss forever. Everybody gives you an image of it one way or another. Uh, all of them are made for the masses. Like I want that if I address, if I go to a village, and you are the villagers who came to listen to me, and I'm a Christian apostle or a Muslim a preacher, or whatever I am, I have to tell you something which will attract you. And I have to lure you with something which will make you want to do my thing. 
And thus, the finality has to, present it, to be presented in an attractive way in, to the understanding of the common people from the masses, because otherwise they will not be turned on. There is a more metaphysical approach, and try to think a little bit. If you increase and increase and increase, and increase and increase and increase and increase and increase, and we can't see any end to this increase, what's the infinite end? The infinite end is only one. Only one. There cannot be anything except the infinite end. And that means, in Christian language, God or the universal cosmic consciousness, if you want to use a more scientific, elaborate word. Therefore, what is the end? The end is that one becomes one with the universal cosmic consciousness. It doesn't matter that you are a saint and the angels are playing their harps. That's not really the end. There is the, this mountain has only one top. What's the top of the mountain? There can be only one top of the mountain where everything becomes oneness. That's why in monism, in non-dualism, this is expressed, but for example, if I would go to a Christian village and tell them Christianity is made so that you become one with God, and you become God, some people would say that that sounds a little bit like a blasphemy. Like theologically, it's questionable. And that's why it's never presented like this, in a Christian village. In a Christian village it's presented like there is a place called paradise which is blissful and you'll be there forever. And God is going to bask you like a son of love forever. You are going to be acknowledged, present, eternal, living, and so on and so on. But that metaphysically that's not a complete image. But it has never been intended to be a full image because the full image scares Try to think, how far can it go? What's at the end of the rainbow? No? There can be only one thing. Please. You mentioned uh, like, uh, something about uh, the rescue vibrations or emanations from the series of shifting in our evolution. Um, can you expand on that? Uh, it was intended as a so the question was about uh, that I mentioned the uh, beneficial spiritual influences coming from the Pleiades constellation. And if I could elaborate on that. Uh, honestly, I could have said as well Sirius or Vega or something, because I intended it at that time as a joke. Um, I'm not saying absolutely it is a joke, but unfortunately it's a concept which is distorted very much by New Agers. Uh, because New Age people uh, entertain the phantasmagoric concept that uh, people are not making efforts to stand up and become more generous and less selfish and less uh, sexually addicted and less violent, but because there is going to come a beam of energy from the Pleiades or from Vega or from the Pole Star or from the Southern Cross, then suddenly people are going to kind of be hypnotized and kind of the most obnoxious drug barons of Colombia are suddenly going to become generous, compassionate, smiling, nice people and they will practice non-violence and generosity because they are showered by some energy from a constellation. I personally fully acknowledge the effect of cosmic energy and vibrations on human beings. 
And the easiest demonstration of that is astrology. That the planets and the astrological signs and this, they describe a kaleidoscopic sphere which shows our karma and this is related with the events in our life. And whoever studies it thoroughly can see that it works fantastically, that it fits. But at the same time, I cannot uh, accept the idea, this passive idea, that we have to make no effort because the Pleiades will make an effort for us. And we are suddenly going, I uh, all the time feel the urge of being violent and I all the time feel the urge of being greedy about food and money and I constantly feel the urge of being selfish. But then because the energy changes, I won't be. Uh, in my experience, as people change themselves morally and ethically, people change themselves morally and ethically by some efforts. So I think that this uh, New age concept that we're going to be transformed by the Pleiades and its energy, it's a tamasic, lazy concept, which simply says you don't need to budge a finger because the energy from the Pleiades will take care of it. And meanwhile, you just eat your pork and watch your football and drink your beer, and the Pleiades is going to purify you. I personally, from what I've seen in this life, and from what I read in the traditional texts of different traditions, I can't believe in that, because it has, it has never happened, and it doesn't sound like it's possible or logical that it could happen in that way. So at the time when I used it, I used it more as an irony to this New Age view, which is a sort of encouraging no self-discipline, no awareness, but let it be on the back of the Pleiades because it's going to do it. And until then, you can cultivate no self-discipline of any kind. Um, otherwise, surely, I will say that um, um, every constellation, star, planet in a constellation or superimposed on a star or something does present a kaleidoscope of energy. And actually the fact that some New Age sources quoted the Pleiades, it's not actually coincidental because in the tradition of the Vedic astrology and others, the constellation of Pleiades is mentioned as a very good source of energy, as a one of the divine sources of energy, exactly like the seven stars from Ursa Major, or Ursa Minor, where the pole star is, I'm sorry, and, uh, and a few others. So actually, strictly speaking astronomically, we are getting a good energy from that direction, but it doesn't seem that that energy will be just enough to produce uh, evolution on Earth. Plus that, if you think about it astronomically and engineeringly, which I can't stop myself from doing because of my background, the Pleiades are not in a different position to our planet Earth now or 10,000 years ago. Like the relative difference between those is changing way too little in a hundred years or in a thousand years to matter. The planets change their position all the time. And those can be accounted for. But distant galaxies and constellations, they are placed at such huge distances and they keep a like, you know, we look at the constellation of Orion and we are told that the Orion constellation was slightly different 12,000 years ago 
when the Egyptians build the pyramids and the three middle, the three pyramids are like the three middle stars of the Orion's belt. And the angle between the three was slightly different. In 12,000 years, three stars change from this to this. That cannot make a huge difference here on Earth. So that's why I say um, I do acknowledge fully the cosmic energies and their influence on human beings, but we cannot evolve. I mean, they, they correspond to long-planned cosmic cycles, and still the human being has to stand up and rise to the spiritual challenge of their evolution. So it was meant as an irony, but half of it is also true, and uh, I've seen it mentioned, especially in the Vedic astrology, where it's quoted literally. I would say it's good enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining. Namaste to all of you, and I'll see you in the next satsangs, Q&As, and other events. Enough for tonight.